Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. This week on The Research Beat, we speak to Fiona Knight, PhD in History at the University of Cambridge. Fiona, welcome to The Research Beat. Hello, how's it going? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, I'm well, I'm well. Fiona, could you introduce yourself briefly to our audience? So my name's Fiona Knight. I'm a second year PhD student at the Faculty of History at Cambridge University. I am looking at emotions and patient practitioner relationships in late medieval England. So I look at the sort of high to late Middle Ages. So that's from around 1250 to roughly about 1450. So what feelings are you looking for in the doctors, surgeons and patients of the time? So I guess there's, there's sort of three main areas. The first of which is shame uh, and emotions related to shame. So what I've been finding is uh, these are often connected with the religious mores of the time. So obviously concepts like modesty. But I think there's also a lot of shame that occurs connected to a failure maybe to adhere to prescribed values of moderacy. Mm. Um, so I think this idea of moderacy is, is, is quite important socially in late medieval England when it comes to speech, eating, behaviour, things like this. Also looking at distrust. So distrust is, I mean, clues in the name, it's linked with this concept of trustworthiness. If we're thinking about it as a kind of transactional relationship, this idea that you have to trust your doctor to provide you with a cure, but also if you're the practitioner, you have to trust the patient to provide you with your fee. <laughs> um, so, so it kind of goes both ways. I think it's also about the diagnostic process as well. You have to trust that the patient is going to kind of not tell you fibs about what they've been eating, what they've been doing, mm. th things like this, how they're feeling. Maybe a more obvious one is fear. So obviously there's anxieties around risk for both sides. And then a bit of a cheerier one is compassion and pity. So looking at how treatments could be undertaken with the patient's comfort in mind, right? So obviously quite closely linked to preventing them from despairing is, is how to make sure that they're comfortable and, and feeling okay, you're assuaging any fears that they have. So it's very much linked with what we call like bedside manner. Speaking of moderacy, fear and distrust, it sounds like the patients and doctors of the time were living in an age full of anxieties. Can you tell us a little bit more about the medical world of the age? Yeah, of course. So I think, like today, there were a lot of options for medical treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. I mean, any sort of historian will tell you, very much restricted by the written record. So educated practitioners coming from universities are very much overrepresented in, in the work that I do because of mm -hmm. what's left behind. But we know, obviously, from, from guilds and things that were on the go, that there was, you know, barber surgeons, so doing things like teeth pulling. And we've got surgeons who are doing wound closures and mass removals. And um, we've got physicians, 
who are prescribing things like regimens and doing more internal medicine. We've got apothecaries who work with everybody else. And then we've got more informal modes of healing that are available to people as well. So domestic things that are happening in the home. So if you're reading a recipe book that's been handed down in the family and and you're sort of concocting something, a treatment for yourself. And then also we get, it's, it's difficult because the commentary on, on these types of healers is very derisive in the written record for obvious reasons, but we get old women. Mm. So people in the community, sort of community healers as well. So in terms of other options, we've got hospitals, but they're not hospitals in the way that we would think of hospitals today. They're much more kind of institution in the community to provide shelter and they're a charitable enterprise. So there's this term called the salvative economy, which relates to the economy of souls. So this idea of charitable enterprises being not only a socially useful thing, but a useful thing for, for the fate of yourself. And hospitals were certainly, how would I say this, outposts of the economy of salvation, mm. if that makes sense. So they're enjoying a lot of noble patronage, but you could be quite cynical about about that noble patronage. So there's a lot of interconnectedness between medicine and different fields of life like religion, politics and charity. This seems to be a very different structure from the one we know today. So this kind of divide between science and religion is not distinct. I think there's a real instinct for us today post-enlightenment to say, well, you know, the church really clamped down on science. They didn't sponsor it. They saw it as a threat, but that's not true at all. So there's quite a blurring of, of these two things. So you'll get educated treatises written by, you know, university educated practitioners. Um, these were men were also clerics. And, you know, there were charms, amulets and incantations, instructions in texts written by these kinds of men. It's not a one size fits all church versus science set up there's a lot of overlap and especially when we're thinking about domestic medicine and self-administered things going to the saint's shrine or saying incantations or buying an amulet and sort of strapping it to yourself these are all very accessible forms of healing for people and they're related to religion but they're also seen as medical and they are perceived as medical and they are medical so in this swirl of medicine, science, religion, how do you as a researcher pin down the emotions of the people in the past? Can you give us a few examples? So you can imagine it's, it's quite difficult. So there was a psychologist in the 60s, I think, called Paul Ekman. And he really, what he wanted to do was um, create this universal emotional matrix so that there were six innate emotions mappable onto six universal facial expressions it's quite a honestly it's quite a medieval <laughs> like research task in and of itself but it is impossible right it's not feasible um it's not going to apply to all contexts but there's a couple historians who've done a really good job of doing this in a medieval context or or working towards a methodology which is workable for a medieval context. One is Barbara Rosenvine. So she writes about emotion words and emotional communities. And so emotion words are ex exactly what they say on the tin. And so her work focuses on mapping change over time in this terminology that's used to refer to emotions. And she coined this concept of emotional communities. So that's related social groups of people who 
use the same methods of expressing emotion and the meanings that correspond to those methods. That's quite a helpful tool for us because we're talking about overlapping identities and overlapping groups of people. To think about people as belonging to different emotional communities at the same time and drawing from different touchstones when it comes to expressing yourself, I think is key. So thinking about someone who's a cleric, but then they're also a doctor, but then they're also a man as well. So, you know, they've they've got um, a lot of different influences on them in that way. And so you need to take into account all of these different walks of life, these different roles, and think about all of them when you're trying to locate these emotions. Yeah, context is key, basically. (laughs) And then as well, we've got Philippa Madern, who works on facial output and gesture. So moving away from the textual and looking at images and the colour of the face is something that's really important to medieval people in terms of assessing emotion. So shame is the big one. And so is anger. So again, it's these kinds of overlapping spheres of of thought, but this is also linked to physiognomy. So this idea that your facial structure and your appearance is linked to your internal world, but also astrology. People born under certain signs would have various different personality traits and humoral dispositions. But there's an author called Bartholomaeus Anglicus, and I'll just read a little quote for you because I think it is, is quite useful. Um, so he says, the dispositions of the members of the body tokeneth and bodeth the affections and will of the soul, as the philosopher saith in Principio Physiognomy. So basically this idea that the external corresponds to the internal. And then thinking about other sources, conduct manuals are a big one. So literally etiquette guides, essentially. So these are very popular in the period that I study, so later, and particularly in later medieval England. A lot of them are aimed at men, but also children. And it's all about, you know, if you're a young boy in a noble household, how you have to conduct yourself at the dinner table in order not to embarrass yourself. So, you know, there would be passages about not going red in the face if you hear a dirty joke, because that makes you seem, well, for want of a better word, naughty. (laughs) Um, So, these these kinds of things but then also guesswork right so not every text is going to be rich in emotion words it's not always going to have pictures and when it's quite I don't want to say dry but if it's written in a kind of medical genre I call my methodology sometimes I'm like coming at it sideways right so mm-hmm. if we're looking at medical text, I, I have to think, okay, you know, why is so much attention paid to the treatment of certain cosmetic conditions over others is that maybe reflective of a social anxiety? And so it's kind of reading between the lines a bit. So you're working with texts and you're working with pictures. How does it feel looking for these visual clues in illuminations or paintings? Because today we have photographs and many other modern things that make it so easy to locate emotions. So there are quite a lot of illuminations in medical manuscripts for sort of obvious reasons. So you get the more again, dry end of the spectrum, so it's a picture of an instrument. So John Ardern's work, so he's a 14th century English surgeon who pioneered fistula surgery. And because he is inventing a lot of instruments and things like that, there's a lot of pictures of that. 
there's also because of the nature of medieval production of knowledge so where texts are taken into the canon or some are more popular than others they're being copied out over and over again so you get a lot of illustrations which are obviously not by the author not intended by the author not related to the author's intent at all but are often done by a scribe who might be bored or it's Mm. them reading it and thinking what's interesting or funny or exciting in this passage and they'll draw a little picture so you know maybe it's something about being bitten by a snake or a worm and then there'd be a snake with a funny face in in the margins do you know what I mean <laughs> so I think <laughs> um and that's 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 the that's the more um PG end of the spectrum there there's can be some quite um lewd pictures as well but I think that really helps us like empathize with whoever was reading and writing it the kind of illustrations are a way into that experience in a way that reading text might not be it's a sort of fresh I mean you get interpolations from scribes all the time but I think marginal illustrations they're very personal I think it's very interesting that you get this second-hand depiction like you say First a scribe writes the work and afterwards an illuminator just does his best with the text in front of him, using his imagination to fill in the gaps. So it's really very different from the modern medical procedures that we know. Yeah, it's not, they're not textbook (laughs) illustrations necessarily. Um, No. (laughs) One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. So what have you discovered so far in your research? Well, there's a lot more kind of frank discussion of payment than I was expecting. Um, (laughs) And... the nature of medicine in this period is quite transactional. It is payment on completion of a cure. And I think that really shapes the medical encounter. And Mm. I think you can imagine that that would change the kinds of treatments that are on offer, right? If you're coming at it really cynically, you could say, well, I'm sure there was a lot more analgesic treatments offered because, you know, if you are maybe an itinerant physician, you're coming to a town, there's no recourse if you don't actually cure someone's condition. But if you give somebody something that takes the pain away, you're getting paid at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, just thinking about the way the transaction shapes the medical encounter, that's been something I've had to think about quite a lot. And then there's a lot of religious language and practices, mm. just in the kind of bread and butter of treatments so like anointing with scented oils and gentle treatments so i i guess if you took it one step further you could say that these were compassionate but just sort of more care than medical practice so like Mm. washing the patient putting the patient to bed letting the patient sleep these kinds of things So that's really interesting because some of the treatments you just described we might call today therapeutic instead of medical or just trying to improve general well-being of the patients instead of an invasive procedure. How else do religious factors influence the treatment that we find in these times? 
I think, yeah, so th it is this infusion of religion and medicine. So, I mean, it's not even just limited to the types of treatments that are offered, but it's like life and death in general. So this, like I said before, the preoccupation with the afterlife. So instead of, you know, nowadays we get the calming green in hospitals, which is the hue, exact hue is picked to psychologically generate this aura of calm. But instead of that in medieval hospitals, you would get what's called doom paintings. So these are murals of like the last judgment, you know, they're pretty grim. <laughs> um, so, you know, we get folk rising from the grave, there's a big hell mouth swallowing people whole, uh, this kind of thing. But there's also, this is another surprising thing that I found, there's a lot of conflicts over who's actually present at the deathbed. And so it's, Henri de Mondeville, who's a French surgeon in the early 14th century, he records instances of like punch-ups between priests and practitioners because both of them insist on the ones being present at the bed of the patient. So you get this literal conflict of authority as well, which is quite, is quite interesting um, to think about. It's not a one-size-fits-all take. But certain surgeons, so I think it's Arno de Villanova, are, are not so keen on analgesics because they think it cloaks the true nature of illness. Mm. And that's actually where palliation comes from. It's from the Latin for cloak. So that's a kind of internal debate that, that goes on within medicine at the time. It's incredible to imagine these things. Paintings of the Last Judgment on the walls and punch-ups in the hospital. What do you think medieval patients were looking for that modern patients are not? I think, to be honest, there's a lot of overlap because I feel like both medieval and modern patients can be quite susceptible to health-related marketing. Mm. So like, the importance of the reputation of practitioners is still really important. I was saying to a student of mine the other day, thinking about like Google reviews for GP practices. This is something that we all look at now when we're choosing where to sign up. And the idea of publicly denouncing malpractice as well, you know, if that's a Google review or, or if, if it's word of mouth in the Middle Ages, it's the same mechanism, really, that we're using to choose our care. And I think as well, there's a lot of attention paid to the kind of ideal practitioner. So in a lot of surgical manuals, there's quite a big opening section usually about what the ideal practitioners should be like so mm. there's quite obvious things like he should have steady hands like you would hope um, or don't be really drunk because <laughs> being drunk is is bad don't do that and, and then if we're talking about coming at it sideways right you would say well why is this such a big problem why are all surgeons drunkards is it because there's a lot of masculine male bonding drinking that goes on between them all in the guild probably but also it's probably quite a taxing profession. They're probably drinking to take away their nerves a lot of the time because of the risk involved and because it is so horrific. But, you know, thinking back to the ideal practitioner, today, you know, you're not supposed to drink on the job either. And also getting into medical school is very difficult. It's, you know, a very arduous process. There's a lot of checks and balances, you know. So these, these are still things that we pay attention to now as well. Patients today place an incredible amount of trust in the hands of those who are treating them. Can you identify that same feeling in the taxi study? That's so true. And as well, we're talking about doom paintings just made me think of the sort of 
importance of hope. And there's a really good, this is a translation of a Mondeville passage, but he says, the surgeon must consider the patient's state of happiness when he plans his daily regimen. For a good start, he might promise a prompt recovery and he should see to it the patient is surrounded by his family and his friends. (laughs) This is funny. He may furnish entertainments by clowns or by musicians with viols. Um, (laughs) So it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually not that different to having hospital visits, for example, or the dogs that go around hospitals for Mm. long-term patients to like cheer them up. It's, yeah, it's not a million, it's not a million miles away. (laughs) I'm actually reminded of that famous film, Patch Adams, with the doctor who behaves like a clown to entertain the patients. It's like a modern bedside manner. The doctors make the patients feel psychologically comfortable and the practitioners you're looking at were really doing the same thing, just in a more colourful and extravagant way. Exactly. I mean, also it goes without saying, not everybody can afford the clowns. So (laughs) (laughs) this is not not the universal experience. Um. (laughs) So in your view, have attitudes to medicine really changed that much over the past few hundred years? I would say no, actually. <laughs> so when we were talking about obviously the repute of of the practitioner as as really key, but also there's competition between medical fields today. So you know, medieval sources there's a lot of competition between surgery and physicians, for example, surgeons and physicians. They're sort sort of grappling for status and business, and I think there's an element of obviously there's a hierarchy of disciplines within surgery today as well you get orthopedics which are you know big rugby lads and it's a very masculine enterprise then pharmacy is is very different you know so I think that's that's a continuation there but this idea as well of the sort of health of the body not necessarily being distinct from the health of the soul and the importance of quote-unquote wellness that is something that is is very prominent today if we're thinking about kind of like Instagram, almost orthorexic attitudes to moderate diet and that corresponding to a kind of superiority. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, quite, that's quite prevalent. And then finally, related to this superficial attitude is cosmetic medicine. And concerns that seeks to address. So, I mean, medieval doctors were also sort of selling cosmetic treatments. One, because it was a really big money spinner and they talk about it in those terms. And the things that they're looking to cure are similar. So there's a lot of shame around male pattern baldness. There's a lot of shame around women and ageing, wanting to dye their hair to cover up grey hair or kind of social anxieties which have, have, have sort of continued on. They're not new by any manner of means. Hair removal as well. This is a fun one. I've got a case. I think this is Bernard de Gordon, who's an Italian physician writing about this, where he says, oh, um, a sex worker told me the best way for women to get rid of body hair is to use bat's blood. He's like, a, he's, he's, you know, repeated all over the world and really well thought of, but um, these are the kinds of remedies you would get in his work. So yeah, just not misinformation, but these these kinds of things you would see, random remedies on Pinterest that's like, you know, mm. drink 
lemon water and this will happen to you. It's very, it's very medieval. <laughs> it's so interesting to see the progression of those practices or rituals throughout the ages. It's the same psychological impulse, just taking a different form depending on which century you're looking at it from. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, it means that medieval or modern people who do a Pinterest recipe are stupid. I think in both medieval and modern times, there's a sense of hedging your bets, right? It's like, well, it's not going to be worse for me. I might as well Mm. give it a try. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we're looking at the medieval things is to think, well, you know, you see things for charms and amulets and incantations. It doesn't mean that they were all superstitious and believed in it 100%. It just meant that this was just one of many things that they might have tried. This is such a rich field of study. Fiona, what led you to medieval medicine in the first place? So I really love the material culture of particularly like medieval religious material culture, I think is, is very beautiful. So that kind of drew me into medieval history. So I was really interested in the cult of saints and the curative properties of relics. So that led me down the path towards medicine. And we're talking about the sort of intersection between religious belief and medicinal belief as well. And then in my last year of undergrad, I did my undergrad at Edinburgh. I took a course with a great historian called Rick Sowerby. So shout out to Rick on early medieval health and medicine. And his seminars are a really encouraging place. Um, <laughs> he was very, he always encouraged this kind of fun sort of modern day speculation, exactly like we've been doing here. So he always made space for that. And as a result, I think I just, I find it interesting. It's wonderful that your lecturer inspired you with his teaching style to pursue your specific field, but also inspires you as a historian. I really like micro history. So like really zooming in. And I think emotion and emotional history is probably the ultimate form of that, right? You're literally trying to get into one person's head. But I also sort of, I like finding continuity and the humanity in which is otherwise quite a formal source. I like to imagine what was going through someone's mind when they wrote that or, you know, when they drew a little silly picture in the side where they bored, you know, little Mm. things like this. That's what I find exciting. I think it's a wonderful way to connect the past to the present and join the dots through the ages. Would you like to achieve more of this through your research? I think I'd sort of, yeah, like I, I was saying, sort of paint the humanity back into the medieval medical encounter and get away from, well, the sort of artificial sort of science religion divide. So I'd like to correct that a little bit. And also get away from doom and gloom, gory, sort of voyeuristic look at like, oh, plague pits or ooh, no anesthesia and, and sort of try and I take a more empathetic approach and take a compassionate approach myself to these things. Yeah. I think a lot of people do have that unfortunate view of the Middle Ages, where all they can think of is the grotesque, the plague and leering demons. So it's wonderful to bring up the lighter side of life and make a more balanced picture of what was going on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's the hope. If you had unlimited funding, what would you do with it? Uh, I would 
100% learn languages. <laughs> so I read a lot of Middle English things now and I love Middle English. But I mean, my dream ultimate, if I had all the time and all the money, I would like to be able to do a bit more comparative history of the Islamic world. And yeah, I'd love to learn Arabic. That, is, that, would, be, that would be my number one. <laughs> Languages are really important in your field of study and I feel the same way. I love learning ancient languages, Latin, Middle English, Old English. It's a wonderful field of study. Fiona, if any of our listeners are interested in learning more about your research, how can they find it? So Twitter is the best way. My Twitter handle is at Fiona Lillian with an underscore at the end. So you can DM me on there and we can have a chat. Fantastic. And what other historians are you reading or following at the moment? So I've mentioned a couple already. I've mentioned Barbara Rosenvine and Philippa Madern. There's another, she's an Israeli historian called uh, Nama Cohen-Hanegbi. Um, she's written quite a few really important things on emotions in medicine, but in the Iberian context. And she is really good at elucidating the philosophical side of emotions and how medieval people thought about emotions. So definitely recommend her work. Sounds really interesting. Fiona, thank you so much for joining the Research Beat. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. One, two, three. For more on Fiona, you can find her on Twitter. And to listen to more research like hers, take notes and share. Sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. 